Hello, welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, and Change Lab Solutions. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. For more information on the legal response to COVID, please check out our report, the COVID-19 Policy Playbook at www.covid19policyplaybook.org. This is our final episode of our most recent series. Thank you so much to all of our guests and viewers for over this past year. If you'd like to watch previous episodes, you can do so at Public Health Law Watch website, www.publichealthlawwatch.org. I'm Sarah DeGia, CEO of Change Lab Solutions, a national nonprofit that uses the tools of law and policy to advance health equity. Joining me today are Sharon Turman. Director of the Work and Family Program and Senior Staff Attorney at Legal Aid at Work, and Danilo Trisi, Director and Poli- uh, excuse me, Director of Policy and Inequality Research at the Center for Budget Policy and Priorities. Thank you both for being here today to talk about laws and policies that support children, families, and attorneys. And lo- thank you for joining us today to support to talk about po- laws and policies that support children, families, and employees. So, Sharon, I'd like to. Start start with you since you were a contributing author to both versions of the COVID legal assessment. Um, can you share a little bit about the findings that you and your colleagues had around paid leave laws across the nation or paid leave laws for um, employees and some of the recommendations that you made, particularly during the COVID pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I think one of the things we really saw during this pandemic is that low income and BIPOC communities really bore the brunt of this crisis, both in terms of health and economic outcomes. And we know that these communities were already facing really stark inequities before we entered this crisis. And just, you know, the pandemic just really exposed and intensified those inequities. And I think when it comes to paid leave, we knew that coming into the pandemic, Black and brown workers and low-paid workers were much less likely to have access to paid leave, which really made it quite difficult for them to stay safe um, and to keep their families safe and to stay financially stable. Um, The U.S., shockingly, is still the only wealthy country in the world that provides zero paid leave. And we've really seen over the past year how this lack of a care infrastructure um, has led to, you know, really terrible outcomes, has led to a mass exodus of women, particularly women of color from the workforce, undoing generations of gains in terms of labor force participation. Um, And so, you know, in terms of the federal response to all of this, um, actually last year in March, Congress did pass the very first ever national paid leave law to address the crisis. Um, We know the law was hugely imperfect. Um, It exempted tens of millions of workers, um, disproportionately many essential workers um, who were most likely to need its protections. Um, And, you know, that being said, even with those imperfections, we know it also made a difference, right? I mean, the research has shown paid leave saved lives. It helped curb the spread of the virus. It helped keep people, you know, financially afloat. Um, And yet Congress let it expire at the end of the year last year at the height of the pandemic. Um, And so, you know, Congress did leave in place some temporary tax credits for employers who voluntarily chose to um, provide paid leave. But the reality is that um, at this moment, when COVID is surging again, millions of Americans 
Americans um, really have no right to paid leave to stay home when they're sick, to care for ill loved ones, importantly, to get vaccinated. Um, and so the bottom line is, you know, the federal response really did, um, it helped avoid an even graver uh, crisis, but there were major gaps in coverage, major barriers that actually worsened disparities. And um, we really do need bold action now to provide universal paid leave to protect the health and economic security of all Americans, especially those who are most um, impacted by the pandemic. Thanks, Sharon. We'll we'll get into a little bit more of, um, of what that may look like too in a minute. Danila, I wanted to shift with to you because um, your organization, I think you're one of the co-authors, just released a report that talked about some of the economic security programs and the role that they play in reducing racial and ethnic disparities. Can you share a little bit about what your colleagues have learned about those programs? We know they were really important during the pandemic as well to help help families make sure that they had access to food and housing and other programs. So um, please share a little bit about your report and what you learned. Yeah, so like Sharon said, um, you know, the, the, the pandemic and economic fallout was widespread. Uh, but it was hard, you know, communities of color were hardest hit. Um, we, one of one of the ways that we tracked uh, how families were doing uh, was looking at the, the share of adults that reported uh, struggling to cover usual expenses. Uh, these expenses included uh, paying for food, rent or mortgage, car payments, uh, medical expenses or student loans. And um, these are data that came from the Census Bureau that the Census Bureau started releasing in August of 2020. And we basically saw that the, the, the rates of, of, of of adults reporting um, uh, struggling to cover these usual expenses continued to increase all the way through uh, in 2020, all the way through uh, to December of 2020. Um, and in December of 2020, um, 38% of adults reported that their household, uh, that they were struggling uh, to cover these usual expenses. That's over 80 million adults. So that's very sobering to think about that there were this many amount of families and, and households that were having to make these tough choices. Should I pay the rent? Should I um, afford food? Uh, should I pay for these other bills that were piling? up. Um, so as Sharon mentioned, you know, the government response helped. Um, yeah, undoubtedly, uh, the hardship rates would have been much higher without the government help. Um, we did see uh, that the, these rates um, dropped uh, somewhat um, after the passage of the American Rescue Plan in, in March of 2021. Um, but even the, the latest data is still, it still shows, you know, widespread hardship. Um, 28% of, of adults um, in the latest data that came out, that's for June, um, are are reporting difficulty covering usual expenses. And then particularly for Black and Latino uh, households, uh, their their rates, um, you know, are closer to 40%. So they're, they're actually in June, they're, 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 they're where they were, the rest of the population was back in, in December. Um, so that's that's really striking. But I think it, it just speaks to the inequities that existed even before the pandemic. Um, we, we've also done some research, you know, using data from before the pandemic, and, and it showed that, you know, one in three children uh, live in a family uh, that, that struggled to, to you know, uh, purchase food or 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 or, or shelter um, uh, over a three-year period. So one in three had trouble, and this was before the pandemic. Um, so this is why we you know we need a robust kind of government response now this year to kind of help us uh, address these inequities that have long existed. Well, that's that's actually the perfect pivot because I want to. I'd like for both of you to talk a little bit about the responses from federal and state governments. Um, I know we've we've talked about some of those programs. I, if you can kind of ex explore a little bit more 
more of like, since that time, since the Biden administration has come in, what are some of their recommendations or proposals that would be really helpful to um, children, families, and employees? And then Sharon, I'd, I'd like to invite you to speak to both the kind of federal and state level, because I know also states can take actions that that are maybe a little bit more tailored to what their particular populations need. So Danilo, if you don't mind um, sharing a little bit at the federal level, what are some of the examples? And then Sharon, I'd love to hear from you about um, some of the examples that around uh, Sure. And uh, to start, maybe I can highlight two policies uh, that are included in the Biden administration's American Families Plan. Um, the first one is the expansion of the child tax credit. Uh, so this week, uh, families started receiving a monthly payment of $250 per child age 6 to 17, and then $300 per child under the age of 6. Um, about 90% of the nation's children uh, will benefit from this expansion, and this could, has the potential to reduce child poverty by 40%. But unless Congress makes this permanent, uh, these monthly deposits will stop in, in, in January of next year. Uh, so it's very crucial for, for Congress in, in this fall to, to extend uh, th- that policy. Um, secondly, uh, the Biden plan includes a permanent extension of the summer EBT program. Now, this was a program that was p- providing additional resources to families with children to, afford, uh, to buy groceries to make up for the loss of um, uh, in the school meals. Um, and, and, and every year we, we see that food hardship among children goes up during the, this, the, the, the summer months because uh, kids are not able to rely on those school meals. So this would be a permanent kind of uh, policy change to address that, uh, to, uh, to provide additional resources to families during those summer months. And, and we know from, from, you know from lots of research that these economic security programs, you know, by reducing hardship for children now, it helps them do better in school and it will help them have better opportunities in the long term, right? Uh, to be uh, healthier and to earn more as adults. Uh, so, so these programs are really investments in, in our collective future. And I'll just say that on paid leave, you know, the, the administration's response has been really twofold. I think first, I already mentioned these voluntary tax credits and President Biden has extended and expanded those tax credits, for example, to allow them to be used um, to cover expenses for leave to get the vaccine. Um, so that's good, but it's still voluntary. And so still millions of Americans are left out um, of the ability to take that leave. At the same time, the administration is also um, proposing as part of the American Families Plan, uh, permanent comprehensive paid family and medical leave on the federal level, um, which would allow um, workers to take paid leave when they're seriously ill, when they're caring for a seriously ill family member, when they're bonding with a new child to deal with a family member's overseas uh, military deployment um, for domestic and sexual violence related reasons. Um, and also bereavement leave. So that plan um, would actually be phased in over 10 years. Um, so which really speaks to the need for states and localities to step up and fill the gaps in the meantime. But, you know, it is also exciting that paid leave on the federal level is finally on the horizon, which, you know, is actually you know very long overdue. Um, at the same time, President Biden is also supporting a number of other and has endorsed a number of other really key proposals to support workers. So an increase in the minimum wage, um, uh, paid sick days, Pregnant Workers Fairness Act to ensure that pregnant workers are not pushed out of their jobs, um, the PRO Act to strengthen unions and worker organizing, uh, the Paycheck Fairness Act to close the gender pay gap and and much more. And so I, I think that really, you know, all of these proposals would go a long way in combination with state action um, to, um, to ensure equity and, and health and stability for families. 
families. You both speak to a really important point, which is that many of the disparities that we saw exacerbated in COVID-19 were actually there beforehand, right? So we already saw disproportionately that Black and brown communities were affected or didn't have the same kinds of employee protections. Um, Danilo, you spoke to, um, you know, poverty rates among children, for example. What do we need to do? And these are all really important policies as we move forward that I think will help to address those and, and, um, and are very much needed. What are the other kinds of structural issues or additional policies that we could look to to address these kinds of structural challenges that we're seeing and that, that particularly put equity really at the forefront um, in terms of trying to level the playing field among some of the, the families and workers who are most impacted by these health disparities? I think that that's a totally right. I think you know Congress really has a historic opportunity to kind of help us advance racial equity and to really invest in communities that have been underinvested for so long. One area that we haven't talked about yet is kind of housing affordability. Um, so we need to make sure to make sure that we need to do more to make sure that housing is more affordable for more families. Um, so one way to do this is to sharply expand housing vouchers. Uh, right now, due to in- inadequate funding, just one in four eligible families receive any federal and rent assistance, and there's long waiting lists. Um, so we should address that. Also, you know, we need to move towards the goal of universal health coverage. Um, an important step towards that would be to um, close the Medicaid coverage gap. Right now, uh, 2.2 million adults um, don't have a health insurance because of this gap. That the majority of those adults are are, are, are adults of color, um, and they 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 don't afford they, they they don't have health insurance because they they are in states that uh, where they're not eligible for Medicaid and they don't have their incomes are too low to be able to get subsidies in the in the affordable in the ACA marketplace. Also, we should think about access to benefits by 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 immigrants and 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 uh, you know one in, in four children uh, have an immigrant uh, at least one immigrant parent. Um, these kids are, are part of our future, uh, but they don't have the equal access to a, a lot of, of a lot of the benefits that we've been talking about. Um, so we should we should find ways to make sure that they, they really have an equal equal shot at success. And lastly, I'll, I'll mention that we should also think about people that live in U.S. territories. Right now, um, you know, poverty rates are higher in in a lot of the U.S. territories, um, but they don't have access to a lot of the the same programs that 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 that, uh, that we that we talked about today. So an important step would be, for example, for for uh, Medicaid funding to be more adequate and 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 long lasting for 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 people living in the U.S. territories. With all of that, and I think in addition to all of the policies we've talked about, I think a couple other ones that come to mind are you know really improving the unemployment insurance system, which we saw was not equipped to handle a crisis of this scale. Um, another really big issue for low paid workers and many workers of color is um, lack of stability in their schedules, lack of control over their schedules, um, unpredictable. Predictability. We, you know, with a lot of workers get basically no advance notice of their schedules, which makes it impossible to plan for caregiving and medical appointments and schooling. So, um, and we know that, you know, there were inequities during the pandemic where, you know, um, higher paid or more privileged workers were able to work from home, right? And which made it much easier for them to juggle childcare. But um, low paid workers often don't have any flexibility over, you know, where and when they work. And so we need to to deal with that, ensure more advanced notice schedules, more accommodations for caregiving. And I think um, 
kind of going back to paid leave for a moment, I want to speak a little bit about um, just the importance of when we're designing these policies, you know, it's really critical that we center the needs of the most marginalized workers. Um, So, you know, we know, for example, from our experience in California, that um, there are certain policy elements that are really vital to ensuring that we are going to reduce racial disparities. And so things like ensuring the leave is job protected, um, ensuring that the wage replacement rate is high enough, particularly for low wage workers making sure there's an inclusive family definition. Um, And then even beyond what the law says, we also really need to focus on implementation and outreach. So like people, we need to ensure that we're doing enough, investing enough in effective community-based outreach via trusted messengers so that people in their own language can get information and get help navigating these programs. Because we're talking about people who are undergoing very stressful life events, right? They're dealing with a serious illness or a new child entering the home. And so we need to design these systems in a way that is easy for folks to access these benefits. So I think, you know, just we have to, as we think about all of these wonderful policies, I just um, wanted to highlight just the importance of not only getting the policy details right, but uh, making sure it's working for folks on the ground. Yeah, thank you for, for lifting that up, Sharon. I think we definitely, I feel like we learned over this past year that, um, you know, there was great intentions for some of our policies and programs, and yet we're still seeing, you know, money hasn't gone out or, you know, communities still don't know about the services or the benefits. Um, Oftentimes it's limited English proficient individuals or individuals who just don't have as much of that contact with, um, you know, programs and services. And so using those trusted community um, service providers is one of the things that we've definitely learned. And there's a, there's a plethora of recommendations out there. We know what we need to do. And I think we just need to make sure that we're partnering with our policymakers and sharing those recommendations and information um, to be able to take action in this time of need. I really want to thank you both so much for taking the time. If Just open it up for any closing comments or thoughts before we say say our goodbyes. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity uh, to talk about these issues. And as we said, you know, th- this year... Um, the Congress really has a historic opportunity to make a difference in in, in a lot of these areas and and, and really invest in, in communities that we've under invested for too long. Yeah, thank you so much for for inviting me to be a part of this important conversation. And I'm excited about this opportunity to yeah invest in in the communities most impacted um, by the pandemic and to ensure we all stay healthy and can um, weather the next crisis. So thank you so much. Well, thank you again to my guests and thanks to all of you for listening today. Again, recordings are available on the Public Health Law Watch web- website, and the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twihl.com. The COVID legal and policy briefings are produced by Faith Kalik and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe.